scripture this morning is from Daniel chapter 8 and verses 1 to 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulei Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one he could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him close come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, we've probably all heard the phrase, forewarned is forearmed. And if, in other words, if we know what's coming, if we know that there's, there's some challenge coming, uh, we know about it in advance, we can be ready for it. We can be forearmed to, to meet the challenge. And for example, in Vancouver, uh, listen to the radio, you're going to hear something about earthquake preparedness. That's a, a theme you hear from time to time in the news. There's stories about it uh, because we live in an earthquake zone. I hope I just didn't freak somebody out. But we live in an earthquake zone, and, and because uh, we're well overdue for the big one, they say, um, there's a lot of talk about being prepared in advance. Uh, so, for example, the, the Ministry of Education over the last number of years has spent over $1.6 billion sort of doing a seismic upgrade on more than 170 schools in the, the sort of lower mainland and, and Victoria region. Um, to be forearmed or forewarned is to be prepared and, and forearmed. Uh, perhaps even some of you have an earthquake survival kit in, in, at home. You know, you, you are forearmed because you've been forewarned. And that, that idea is, uh, is really what, what Daniel 8 is all about. Uh, Stephen just read for us the first eight verses, but we're going to, like we have each week, we're going to look at the whole chapter, and uh, there's all these strange images. We're going to look at this, this vision that Daniel has of a ram and a goat and then a, a little horn and try and make sense of that. And so I want you to know up front that really this is about being forewarned so that we can be forearmed. It's, it's kind of like, think of the... Um, the scout's motto, be prepared. That's what 
That's what Daniel 8 is about. We want to be prepared, um, especially when, when times are difficult. When we face opposition, we, we shouldn't be taken aback. We shouldn't be surprised at that. We should be prepared for that. We'll see some, some of that in this morning's message. Uh, before we jump in, let me invite you, please, to just pray with me again. Father in heaven, we trust you to speak to us this morning in all our different needs and, and places and situations. We trust that you have a word for us. Your living and your active word, I pray, would be implanted in our hearts, that we would humble ourselves to hear you uh, speaking to us, that we might be for, forewarned and forearmed to persevere uh, through troubles and trials that may be in our future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but just those first eight verses uh, that Stephen read sounded very strange. And we're, we, we were introduced to some of this apocalyptic language last week. Um, and we're going to look at some more of it here. There's this strange apocalyptic language which can be very difficult to understand. And it certainly was difficult for Daniel to understand. But we here this morning have an advantage that Daniel didn't have. See, Daniel had this vision that he couldn't understand, and and so much so that God sent him an angel named Gabriel to interpret the vision for him, but still much of it was unclear to him. And we have an advantage that he didn't have. We have the advantage of history. We can look back and make more sense of this vision than Daniel could because we look back at it. Daniel looked forward to it as something that was coming in the future. In fact, in verse 26, an angel comes and says to him, seal up the vision because it refers to many days from now. In other words, this is a vision that God has given Daniel that has been interpreted by the angel for something that is way in the future, sometimes hundreds of years in the future. But for us... It isn't the future. For us, it's history. It's ancient history. And so we can take the components together of of Daniel 8 and look at it through the lens of history and make more sense of it than Daniel was able to make of it in his own day. So we're going to look at it and take it apart piece by piece. And we begin with this this vision of a ram. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me, if you would, please. In verses 3 and 4, we read, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, on its own, that's very difficult for us to understand. But but thankfully, as we look ahead, as I mentioned, this angel named Gabriel comes to Daniel and he helps him make sense of it in verse 20. Gabriel explains, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram with the two horns, the horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. 
And history, from the perspective of history that we have, we can discern that the the longer horn, the, the bigger horn, is King Cyrus. So the angel doesn't tell him that, but we see that with the advantage of history. And Cyrus was known as the king of the four corners of the world at the time. And so what happened is Cyrus, this great king, arose, and then for the next 200 years, Cyrus and his successors really expanded the Persian Empire. It became the greatest empire that had ever existed. If you were to sort of take its measurements at its greatest point, it started way out in the west, sort of touching the coast of Italy, and it went as far east as the borders of India. And then if you were to look from the north, it it took that region of southern Ukraine, we call the Crimea. I guess that's Russia now. Um, That was a political joke. And then it went all the way down to the most southern border of modern-day Egypt. So think of how vast this empire is. Persia, between 550 B.C. and 330 B.C., when it came to an end, Persia was the superpower of the ancient world. That's what we've got to get in mind. This invincible ram. No one could stand against the power of this King Cyrus and his successors. This is a global superpower. That's the first part of Daniel's vision. And then in the second part, Daniel sees a goat. Look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west came across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, moving so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And then, as we saw before, the angel comes and helps to fill in the picture a little bit. Verse 21, the angel tells Daniel, the the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So again, we don't see the specifics yet, but if we take history into account, we can put a name to, to this great horn. The name of Alexander the Great. Many of us have heard of Alexander the Great, perhaps one of the greatest ancient military uh, generals and kings. Alexander was born in Macedonia in 356, and uh, this is interesting, he studied, his tutor, his teacher was Aristotle. So, you know, not bad. Um, So he had Aristotle as a tutor, And at only age 20, after the death of his father, he became the great king of Macedonia. And he didn't waste any time at all. He just went on this this fervent military campaign to basically conquer everything that he could see. And Alexander, uh, over the period of 12 years, basically made the kingdom of Macedonia or Greece the ancient superpower. And as he went, everywhere he went, he brought the Greek language and the Greek culture with him. So, for example, that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's because of the the way in which Alexander spread his kingdom throughout the ancient world. Now, during his reign, Alexander's great conquest was to overthrow 
that great kingdom of Persia that I talked about a moment ago. And he did that. Look at verses 6 and 7. He, that is the great, the, the goat, Alexander, he came to the ram with the two horns, the Persian king, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So here was this great ram that seemed absolutely invincible. And now another king has risen and Alexander comes and now Alexander's invincible. He's taken over the whole Persian empire. But that wasn't enough for Alexander. He was a man, a young man in a hurry. And so after taking over all of that massive empire of Persia, he set his sights on the east. He wanted more. He wanted more victory and more conquest. And so he looked east. He looked to what we would think of today as as sort of modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he even had India in his sights. He wanted it all. And so he took his soldiers, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand or more soldiers, and marched eastward. They faced bloody battles, and, but they won. They, they conquered everything they touched. But by the time they got to India, these guys had had enough. They were years away, so far from their home, and they had got, been gone for years. They kind of uh, lost patience with Alexander, and they said, we're not... We're not marching any further east. And so Alexander turned his army back and they started walking westward. And that brought Alexander all the way back to uh, Babylon. And he, he was in Babylon when he became mysteriously ill and died. In fact, he died in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon on this day, June 10th, 323 BC. He was only 32 years old. And he had conquered the known world. And then after Alexander died, this vast empire, this vast kingdom that he had amassed was broken up. And it was it was separated into four separate kingdoms. And this is described here in Daniel's vision in verse 8. Then the great or then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Daniel was cut off at the peak of his strength and in the middle of his life. And then it says, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. The angel in verse 22 explains this. He says, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. None of them had the power or the greatness that Alexander had. So there's these four kingdoms. And that concludes the second part of Daniel's vision. And then there's a third part of his vision, and this is quite unlike the other two. In the third part, Daniel focuses on a little horn, this this single ruler that is going to arise. 
and he's quite unlike the others. In verses 9 to 12, we read, Out of one of them, that is the four kingdoms or the four horns, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, or, or Israel, the promised land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So here's what happened. After, after Alexander died, his, his whole kingdom is divided, and there's four empires that come out of it. And one of them, one of those empires is the Seleucid Empire, which is one of those four kingdoms. And out of the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid kings in 175 BC, there's this one king that arises. His name is Antiochus IV. And that's the little horn, this, this great and boastful little horn in Daniel's vision. It's Antiochus IV. Now, he called himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Very humble guy. And he, you know, he obviously had a big, a big ego, a big view of himself. And, uh, but by all accounts, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was not the most stable character. In fact, contemporaries of Antiochus called him um, Epimenes, which means the crazy one. Later Jewish sources um, refer to him as Harasha, the wicked one. Antiochus was a different kind of leader. Now, at this point in time, uh, we're used to thinking in, in Daniel about Daniel making these prophecies and uh, from the perspective of being an exile in Babylon still. But Daniel's vision is not about being an exile in Babylon. He is, his vision sees a day when the temple is restored and the sacrifices in the temple are reinstituted. That's what Daniel's vision sees. Temple is rebuilt, the temple is restored, the sacrifices are reinstituted. We can read about that in the uh, book of Nehemiah. But that, that vision that Daniel has, does not mean that all is well in Israel, all is back to normal. Because under this reign of Antiochus, who rules that part of the world, there's great persecution. The people of God are persecuted under his power and his hand. It's brutal. One, one ancient record um, gives us some of the gruesome details. Here's what it says. Raging like a wild animal, he, that is Antiochus, took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 
40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. Now, some historians suggest that maybe these numbers are a bit exaggerated, but the point is that there was a, a massive persecution of God's people. Antiochus really had it out to, to destroy all of Judaism. He, he outlawed all the Jewish practices of Sabbath-keeping and of uh, sacrificial offering and of circumcision. But not only that, Antiochus dedicated this rebuilt temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem, he dedicated it to the pagan god Zeus. And then to add insult to injury, he took the blood of pigs. Now, if, if you're Jewish, you understand pigs are not kosher, literally. And he took this, the blood of what is considered a, an unclean, a ceremonially unclean animal, and he took the blood and poured it all over the altar in the Holy of Holies. And not only that, but Antiochus encouraged temple prostitution. So there's this way in which he just um, defiles everything that is holy. He, this is a rage not just against the people of God, but against God himself, as the vision suggested. Now at this point, it doesn't th- things look about as bad as they're going to get. And in verses 13 and 14, one of the angels asks, we read, Then I heard a holy one speaking, an angel. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? That's the sacrifice, the, the offering of the pig's blood. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. How long? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So there's this image of, of defilement and desolation and destruction upon God's people even after they have been restored to the land and the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifices have been reinstituted. Everything seemed great, but Antiochus comes on the scene and he rages against God. He rages against his people and he defiles everything he touches. And the angel asks, how long? How long is this to last? How long is this monster going to rage against God and his people. Now, according to the angel, it's 2,300 days or, or evenings and mornings. It's about six years and four months. And then everything will be restored, the angel says. Now, a lot of people speculate on what the meaning of all this is about, and we're not going to drill down into the details, but... I think one point of all of this is that God doesn't deal with historical generalities. For God, the days are all numbered. He works, he works with a specific and a detailed plan. He has a calendar, not with massive eras of millennia, but he has a calendar with days. He knows all the specifics, every evening and every morning. 
Now, six years and four months might seem like a long period from our perspective, but the point, I think, of this passage is that it's not going to last. It's going to come to an end. Things will not always be this way. The day is coming when the Lord will restore what even this this monster Antiochus has defiled. The angel's interpretation in verses 24 and 25 gives us sort of some more insight into the rise and fall of Antiochus. It says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Mark that. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the peoples who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Boy, is that, that nails it. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, God himself. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now in verse 24, I told you to mark that, that his power shall be great, but not by his own power. I think there's a hint in here. There's there's a hint in here about the source of Antiochus's strength. See, the source of his strength is is a lot darker and more sinister than we might at first imagine. Antiochus is strengthened by, I think, Satan. Even before... Christ comes into the world. There's a spirit of Antichrist at work in the world. So that's the power behind someone who rages against God like this. In, in 166 BC, um, Judah Maccabeus was so offended by what he saw going on to uh, Israel and the temple and the sacrifices. He, he raised up a revolt. They led a successful revolt. They pushed back Antiochus and his soldiers. And eventually, in 164, he cleansed the temple and reinstituted the sacrificial system. And Antiochus mysteriously died that same year. That, that restitution, that restoration of the temple is celebrated every year by the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. So that's an interesting history lesson, but I don't think you came this morning just for a history lesson. Maybe there's some history buffs and you've been taking a lot of notes. Um, But I don't think that's why you're here this morning. I think the question that we ask of a text like this is, how does this speak to me? I'm, I'm living here in 21st century Vancouver and... This is interesting, but I, I need to know how to live faithfully now, today, this week. So I think there's a number of things this text can tell us, and I want to spend the rest of our time just drilling down on five of them. First of all, God's word is true. Now, we know that, but let me remind you, God's word is true. In, in John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, 
Father, sanctify them, us. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is true. And we've, we've seen some insight into that this morning by considering how what we know from history confirms the vision and the interpretation of the vision that we read in Daniel 8. These are, these are events that lay, in some cases, hundreds of years in Daniel's future, which we can look back upon and see that points to that. That is this person, and that is that event, and that's how that happened. I think that's important because, because the, our faith is not rooted in myths, our faith is not rooted in fantasies. Our faith is not rooted in um, abstract spiritual principles. Our faith is rooted in a God who acts in history. Our faith is in, in a God, the faithfulness of God, worked out on the stage of human history. Ultimately, I'm a Christian this morning, and I hope you would say the same. Um, we are Christians not because the Christian life is easy. It isn't. But because it's true. I- I'm a Christian because the truth about Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is, is true. It happened in history. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He, he grew up a poor carpenter in Na- Nazareth. He ministered and talked about the kingdom of God in, uh, in Galilee and in Jerusalem. He lived, he ate, he worked, he slept. He lived like all of us. He walked on the earth in space and in time, in history. God works His redeeming works in history. And God's Word confirms it. God's Word is rooted in God's works in human history. It's true. That's why we believe it. Secondly, God forewarns His people in order to prepare them. God forewarns his people in order to prepare them. Daniel was told to to seal up this vision that he had been given because it was for the Jewish people years down the road who needed to read these words to know that, to not be surprised, to not be... um, to not be surprised by what was happening when Antiochus railed against them. They needed to know that God was in control to what was happening. God had appointed these things, even the end of Antiochus. It's important to realize that Antiochus is not just an isolated individual from history. Christopher Wright points out he is an archetype representing a reality that surfaces again and again at different times throughout history. There's Antiochuses throughout the 20th century. See, the truth is that in a fallen world, in a fallen world where people suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness, in a fallen world where people have rebelled against God, 
following Jesus is never going to be easy. It's, it's never going to be comfortable. And Jesus, just like in Daniel 8, Jesus told us that in advance. See, Jesus doesn't want us to go into the future unaware of what is going to happen. So, for example, in John 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus forewarned his followers. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus tells us later in John 16, 1, he says, I have said all these things to you in order to keep you from falling away. Jesus alerts us. He, war- he forewarns us. He tells us what's coming. Paul says, everyone, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not might be persecuted, will be. Now that, that is not maybe welcome news to us. We live in a comfortable and prosperous and a peaceful time in history for the most part. This is what God's word tells us. And we ought not to be surprised when people oppose us. I've I've counseled believers who have lost their jobs because they were merely being Christian on the job at work. Don't be surprised. This week, I, I bet someone here will face opposition because they are a Christian. the way the wind is blowing in our culture, it seems as though there is a growing opposition to the beliefs that we hold as Christians. Now, we're a long way from Antiochus Epiphanes, but we ought not to be surprised. You know, it's kind of like one of my kids. Uh, Johnny is a practical joker. And imagine this, where I, I see Johnny you know, sort of skulking around and he, and he hides around a corner. He doesn't know that I see him and he, and he hides around a corner and I know that he is hiding there because as I come down the hallway, he's going to jump out and scare dad and give him a heart attack. But I saw him. And so I, maybe, maybe I decide to go around the other part of the house and sneak up on Johnny and scare him. Certainly if I went down the hallway and Johnny jumped out, I wouldn't be scared. I wouldn't be surprised. I know what's coming. I know he's there. Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you and say all kinds of evil against you on my account for my sake. Now, that's a very different way of looking at our troubles, isn't it? But to be forewarned is to be forearmed, to be prepared to remain faithful and true to Christ, even in the worst circumstances. 
We have brothers and sisters throughout the world today who are giving their lives because they are faithful to Jesus Christ. We need to pray for the persecuted church. Third, we must learn to wait on the Lord as we persevere in faith. You notice that the angel in Daniel 8.13 didn't ask why. We love to ask why. Why is this happening to me? But that's not what the angel asked. The, the angel asked, how long? See, the strange thing about modern people, like us, like me, the strange thing about modern people is that we think suffering and trials and conflict is strange. And that it can somehow be avoided altogether. That somehow we can sail through life on the calm seas of peace and prosperity. According to the Bible, that is not an option. That is not an option if we are determined to faithfully follow Jesus. God wants us to expect trouble and trust him in the midst of it. In fact, I would suggest this, that faithfulness can only be forged through trials. I'm not qualifying that statement at all. I think faithfulness to Christ can only be forged through trials and through troubles. Consider James 1, for example. In verses 2 to 4, here's what we read. James is extremely countercultural. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 12, he adds, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The good news of Daniel 8, the good news of the whole Bible, is that trials will not last forever. The Lord will bring them to an end. But trials, even even trials like persecution and opposition. Trials and persecution and opposition are ultimately appointed by God for our good. Just like, Dan, just like James says. Just like Romans 28.28 says. Trials are for our good to conform us to the image of Christ, to purify and refine our faith, to enable us to persevere. So often I, I talk to people who are in the midst of, of great trouble, great trial, and that is when they begin to believe the lie that God is somehow against them. I think according to the Bible, I think that what I would say is God has never been so much for you and with you because God has appointed, graciously given you not only the gift of faith, but also the gift of suffering for his sake. 
That's what Philippians 1.29 says. It's been a gift given to us not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We follow a crucified Savior. We follow a suffering Savior. The cross for every one of us precedes the crown. And that is about as countercultural as you can possibly get in a prosperous and peaceful North American context. I think the problem is that our troubles often weigh, it's, they seem to weigh so much more upon us than the eternal weight of glory that God has given you in Christ. Let me ask you this morning. I, a room like this, we all have troubles. We all come with burdens weighing us down, troubling us. But do those weigh more to you now, today, this morning, than the weight of glory that rests upon you because of what Christ has done for you. In Romans 8.18, Paul says that the sufferings, and he, he endured many, many sufferings. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I think we need an eternal perspective on our lives and our troubles, and our suffering, and opposition. Opposition will not last. It will come to an end. Its days are numbered. Jesus is victorious. Fourth, we must be about the king's business. I love this. It's right at the end of Daniel 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome from his vision, and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel was rocked. He was shaken by what he had seen and what the angel had interpreted for him. He even missed a few days' work. But then what did he do? I want to be like a Daniel. He got up, got out of bed, he shaved, took a shower, got clean, put on a new suit, and he went back about the king's business. He went back about his daily business. He went shopping and he did the dishes and he washed his clothes and he took out the trash and he recycled. He went about the king's business. I was talking with someone this morning. I, I often have this sense of foreboding. Um, I feel like something bad is going to happen. And I, I think it's because I lost both of my parents and at an earlier age, and, and that kind of put a dark cloud over me. And yet, you know, I, there's some days, honestly, just honesty moment here, there are some days I feel lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut, and I, I just want to go back to bed. But... Even if something is coming, I want to be about the king's business. I want to force myself to get out of bed and get busy. We're called in the Christian life. We're called to serve. 
We're called to, to, to put our hand to the plow. There is no labor in the kingdom of God, Paul tells us, that is in vain. Being a mother at home with young children is, is a labor that is never in vain. Going to a dreary do- job day after day and working with colleagues that maybe don't particularly like you is a labor that is never in vain when it's done in the Lord's strength and for His glory. We're called to endure much just by living lives and getting older and all of the little trials and troubles. But we need to be about the king's business every day. I love Daniel's example. Fifth, the Antiochus epiphanies of this world are not the biggest enemies we can face. See, the greatest desecration, the greatest defilement of all that is truly and holy and sacred was not when Antiochus Epiphanes threw blood on the altar in the Holy of Holies. Not even close. The greatest desecration, the greatest defilement of what is most holy and most sacred was seen when the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, was crucified on a cross outside Jerusalem. Because there and then, in his crucifixion, we are told that he became a curse for us. See, we were cursed because of our our rebellion, because of our sin against God. We were cursed. We were all living under the curse. But he became a curse for us. He bore our curse in our place. Condemned he stood. Paul says that the sinless Son of God became sin for us. He took our sin so that we might become his righteousness. God himself, in the person of his Son, allowed himself, took upon himself the defilement of all our sin and our rebellion, past, present, and future. What Antiochus did to the temple in Jerusalem pales in comparison. Here's the good news that we have this morning. When Jesus died and when Jesus rose again, he he conquered a much greater enemy than Antiochus Epiphanes. He conquered for us the greatest enemies we will ever face, Satan, sin, and death. He conquered those great enemies And he rose victorious. And we rose up with him from the grave. If you're in Christ this morning, if your hope is in Jesus this morning, let me tell you, you are risen with him and you are free from the condemning power of sin and its ugliness and its shame. You are free from the power of Satan to manipulate you. And ultimately you are free free from the sting of death itself. 
That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.21, to die as a Christian is gain. Death has no hold over us. And we're called to live in this life as if, because it doesn't, as if death has no hold over us. Some people ask me what pastoral ministry is all about sometimes. You know what I tell them? I say pastoral ministry is helping people to suffer and die well for the glory of God. That's a pretty good definition of it. That's what, that's what Daniel 8 is, is trying to help us do this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would stir up our hearts with your word, which is truth, and that we would be forewarned so that we might be forearmed and prepared to not be shaken when trouble comes, but to to see it rather as your work in our lives to purify and strengthen our faith that we may persevere to the end. Give us that grace, we pray. In the merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.